You're listening to Splendid Chaps, recorded live at the Public Bar Melbourne on the 14th of July 2013. This episode of Splendid Chaps, Seven Religion, is presented in two parts. Join us now for part one. There are worlds out there where the sky is burning, and the seas asleep and the rivers dream. People made of smoke and cities made of song. Somewhere there's danger, somewhere there's injustice, and somewhere else the tea's getting cold. Come on, Ace, we've got work to do. It's time for Splendid Chaps, the podcast with an indefinite capacity for pretension. Please welcome your hosts, Splendid Chaps, both of them, Ben McKenzie and John Richards. Hello, and welcome to Splendid Chaps, episode 7 slash religion. Yes, the 7th or indeed 23rd in oh, the series. Oh, whatever it is. We're not even counting yeah, anymore. We, we can't keep making the joke. 11 episodes, 11 doctors, and, you know, both of those things are wrong now, aren't they? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, at least we're not the only ones at fault, John. <laughs> it's the BBC's fault as much as ours. Everyone is to blame. So right. thank you for joining us. It's going to be quite an exciting show, this. It we is. Have... I got so excited watching this because I, I have to admit, I keep talking. I realise I've been living a lie during Splendid Chaps. Uh, I keep saying... I have three favourite doctors and that they are two, five and eleven and that's just not true. I have one favourite doctor and it's Sylvester McCoy. (laughs) I don't know why I've been in denial about this but it is just true. Um, And so I got so excited as you can see um, on the very visual podcast. (laughs) I'm wearing my jacket with all badges on it. Um, They're not Ace's badges, they're my badges. Uh, But I, I thought that wasn't quite enough so I also tried to do a bit of... Sylvester magic here. I've got the uh, the fob watch. I don't know if you ever noticed this. I've got the fob watch in the top pocket, which is how he wears it. What a ridiculous way to wear a fob watch. <laughs> it's really not very convenient to access. I've also got a bit of knitwear going there, which is nice. Yeah, got always a, a little knitwear. knitwear yeah, no question era. marks, unfortunately. I don't have one of those. Yeah. I always wanted a question mark umbrella. I never found one. There's I, one, one over I know, there. someone's one got one in the audience. Members. And I'm, yeah. I'm really controlling myself not to just mug him <laughs> and take it. Um, but you, you've you've dressed up quite well, John. I, I, this is this is my my this morning. I just tried to work out what was in my house that might look like McCoy. Ever put it all together? So apparently, I own a lot of McCoy esque clothes. <laughs> Only a lot more corduroy than he ever wore. Do you? Uh, <laughs> well, I'm the same. Do you? Do you ever wonder if perhaps our sartorial tastes have been unduly influenced by Doctor Who? <laughs> I think they have. The reason I, I own so many waistcoats is yeah, because yeah. so much velvet. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, we should mention, as always, there are prizes. The prize we have, thanks to BBC on DVD, is Ace Adventures box set. Ooh. Which uh, contains Dragonfire and the Happiness Patrol. Yep. And that was <laughs> muted response from hey, the audience. Hey, 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 <laughs> Those are both great. I watched them both. And i tell you, well, uh, also, um, worth the price of admission is um, there's a bit on Dragonfire where they interview a few people about that story, one of whom is previous Splendid Chaps guest, Josie Long. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, she's been on a couple of the DVDs. So there will be copies that to win for the audience members here and also the audience listening at home. Yes. But first, should we travel back in time? I think we should. Petra, will you throw the fast return switch? But of course, Ben. Today, we're heading back to the period of September 1987 to December 1989, a time when you couldn't move without tripping over a Roxette single. Seriously, they were everywhere, all over my bedroom floor. 
The Casingle was a marvel, combining the technical limitations of the seven-inch single with the technical limitations of the cassette tape, <laughs> leading to the obvious name, the singlet. Casingle sales would peak in 1990, although the terror of Roxette continues to this very day. It's a period of big changes, including the death of Emperor Hirito and the end of Ronald Reagan's run as president. He'll be succeeded by George Bush. No, the other one. And Australian Prime Minister Bob Hawke cries on television, back when that was a new thing. Australia commemorates 200 years of white settlement and Expo 88 comes to Brisbane. Well, someone had to. Apart from Brisbane, places that become synonymous with tragedies in this period include Hillsborough, Lockerbie, Queen Street and Tiananmen Square. Perestroika leads to the end of the Cold War and in 1989 the Berlin Wall finally comes down. As if the people of Berlin had not suffered enough, David Hasselhoff performs a concert there. <laughs> Iranian refugee Miran Karimi Nasiri finds himself stateless in 1988 and starts living in the departure lounge of Paris's Charles de Gaulle airport, where he will stay until 2006. Tragically, he will eventually be played in a movie by Tom Hanks. Work starts on two projects that will bring people together. The Channel Tunnel connecting the UK and France, which will be completed in 1994. And Tim Berners-Lee kicks off development of the World Wide Web, which would be open to the public for free use in 1993. In other science news, the mitochondrial Eve theory is first posited. Florida rapist Tommy Lee Andrews is the first person to be convicted as a result of DNA fingerprinting. And Prozac is first marketed in the US. Annual sales in that country will reach 350 million within a year. In music, debut albums are released by Nine Inch Nails, Nirvana, The Stone Roses, The Pixies, Tracy Chapman, N.W.A. and Kylie Minogue. 1987 is a big year for fictional characters, with Captain William Rogers launching into space in 1979's Buck Rogers, World War III breaking out according to Space, 1999, and Rose Tyler meeting her father in the 2005 Doctor Who story, Father's Day. If Rose had just stayed in and watched the last part of Dragonfire, she would have saved herself a lot of trouble. <laughs> Back in the real world, 1989 is big year for creeping conspiracy theory fans, with the Soviet news agency TASS reporting the landing of a UFO in Voronezh, Space Shuttle Columbia taking off on a secret five-day military mission, and renowned ufologist Bill Moore revealing that he was part of a government disinformation campaign to discredit fellow UFO investigator Paul Benowitz. And finally, while we're talking aliens and television, Star Trek The Next Generation premieres on September 28, 1987, and the last ever episode of Doctor Who airs on the 6th of December, 1989. Or does it? <laughs> yes, I think the pause is appropriate. I've got to say, it's a far more interesting period historically than the last episode was. A lot more stuff happened yeah. in this period. A lot more, lot more nice stuff. And not just the casingles. No. <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. No mention of Thatcher, John. No, she was there, she was there, she was doing her thing. She was there, we we didn't want to know about it. (laughs) Of course, Doctor Who was, well, coming to an end with the McCoy era, the last of the the classic Doctors. Yeah. We should probably get some people on to talk about that, shouldn't we? I think we should, John. Let's have some guests. Who are our guests? 
Our first splendid chap is a freelance writer and game developer who once upon a time worked on a Doctor Who game. He says it was very much like being paid to write fan fiction. Time and travelling through it continues to crop up in the games he works on, even if only in a forwards direction. His most recent project was Sunshine with Pachinko Pictures, made in support of LA Game Space, and he is currently teaching through the games program at RMIT and writing a novel. Our second splinter chap is an award-winning comedian, improviser and comedy writer. His television credits include The Glass House, The Sideshow, Randling and Good News Week. And he's won five Australian Writers Guild Awards. He won the Moosehead Award at the Melbourne Comedy Festival for his show, The Social Contract. And his other live shows include Puppy Fight Social Club, A Complete History of Western Philosophy and Dave Bluestein's Grand Guignol. One of them is originally from Scotland and is about to move back to the UK. The other lives in Sydney and flew to Melbourne just to do Splendid Chaps. They're Paul Callahan and Dave Bluestein. Hello and welcome. Hello, hello. Hello. I noticed there was no mention of, I don't know if you're going to launch straight into this, but uh, no mention of Thatcher, but she's everywhere in the McCoy era. That, yeah. that, that is a fair point. Yeah, I yeah. think that's why we didn't mention her in the history because we're going to talk about her during this part oh, of the show. Right. Did that's, you live through that? That I lived Paul? through Thatch? No, yeah, I yeah. died during, <laughs> during her, um, her reign. I wasn't sure if so you, you, I wasn't sure if you were in the UK or your accent just never left. <laughs> yeah. I, sort of, I, I was there but not necessarily aware of politics at that age. But obviously now it's like, oh, good, she's gone. Bye. <laughs> She's really gone. Thanks for everything, Thatcher. It was, <laughs> it was great. Yeah. Are, you, are you fans of, of the era? Are you... Enormous fans. Yeah, McCoy is absolutely my favourite. I actually, I, like, so I was a big fan of Doctor Who throughout my whole childhood. When I was in year one at school, uh, my friend Chris Wetherill and I uh, used to act out Tom Baker stories at recess, and I always had to be, I always had to be Sarah Jane Smith. Uh, <laughs> You but had to be. I had you to always be. always had to be. <laughs> he was taller. Uh, but I, kinda, I, I really lost interest in, with Peter Davison and Colin Baker. And then um, when uh, Sylvester McCoy appeared, I was already... I, I got involved in a, like a youth circus. So I was kind of... My mind was in that whole, you know, uh, cabaret kind of live performance stuff. And you then know so, what it's like. You so join a youth circus and, then, and yeah. it's just... And then this, this short man appears on TV playing the spoons and it's like <laughs> it's all on for young and old. And it completely like I was so completely wrapped up in, in everything again. So, yeah. Paul, how did you get into Doctor Who in the first place? Um, I mean, it, kind of my, my parents... We only have one TV in the house. Um, and so my parents... I could only watch Doctor Who when they weren't watching like Coronation Street. Basically, <laughs> so you so, missed the entire Sylvester McCoy era. No, no, no. I, I, whenever my parents would go out on a Wednesday night when it was screening, I would watch it. So I only have like individual, like twenty-four minute segments of the show. And so revisiting it for this podcast, I was like, oh, I know how this middles. I don't really know. I don't really know how it starts or ends. I wasn't. I wasn't allowed to watch TV during the week at school, except on Fridays. And I, like, I, in theory, I had a like a VCR recorder but i was very forgetful so i've seen like every fifth episode <laughs> as it came out uh, it was quite, quite an avant-garde series for you two wasn't it <laughs> i was just like what like this yeah he was he used to be fighting these daleks and now he's 
chasing after someone on a bike. To be like, I don't, I don't really understand this. To be fair, I I went back and watched it later. The whole stories, and I still don't understand why Sylvester McCoy suddenly climbs down a cliff on an umbrella for no apparent reason. No one does. Apparently, it's Clara's fault. That's all we know. (laughs) That's That's all we know. Yeah, and and so Paul, you worked on a Doctor Who game. What was that experience like? Because it was an interesting time when you were working on it, wasn't it? Yeah, so this was before... So kind of before uh, Christopher Reichelston, basically. So no one really knew what the new show was going to be. And the company I was working at got the license um, before the before the reboot. Um, and it, it was it was interesting because we, we did it like a whole big pitch for it and, and brought in basically... 25 years at the time of, of, of history and they said, we're, we're getting rid of all of that. You can't, you can't do any of it. And then they sent us over um, episode one, Rose. And so the entire company of about 60 or 70 people sat around watching this episode of Rose and we were like, oh, this is really interesting. Last of the Time Lords, new character. These are really great ideas. Um, and then we saw episode four, which is the one where farting aliens take over Downing Street. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like a lull in the room and people were just like... We're not quite sure what this is anymore. Um, and so, so we went away and, and we kind of worked on it, a revision. Um, I mean, the most interesting thing about making a game based on Doctor Who is everyone, everyone goes, Doctor Who's not an action character. He's a brainy character. And you go back and watch the episode and he's like punching people and he's on motorbikes and he's coming down on an umbrella. And you're like, he's doing shit all the time. He is super actiony. And they're like, no, no, he can't. He has to use the sonic screwdriver and he has to think his way out of stuff. We have started talking about Sylvester McCoy. We got a little bit ahead of ourselves. Perhaps we should hear about the man himself. Petra, why don't you tell us about Sylvester McCoy? Percy James Patrick Kent Smith, better known as Sylvester McCoy, or Sylv to his friends was born in Danoon, Scotland on the 20th of August, 1943, a birthday he shares with co-star Sophie Aldred. He was named after his father, a Royal Navy submarine officer, who was killed just a month before his birth, and he was brought up by his mother, aunts and grandmother. At school, McCoy reportedly showed interest in every profession at careers talks, and this led to him training from age 12 to 16 for the priesthood at Blair's College in Aberdeen. There he became interested in classical music and history and applied to be a monk, but was rejected as he was too young. He instead went to a co-educational Dunoon grammar school and soon changed his mind about becoming a monk. After school, McCoy took a holiday to London and decided to move there, initially getting a job at an insurance company. At the age of 27, he decided insurance wasn't for him and managed to get a job in the box office of London's Roundhouse Theatre with his friend Brian Murphy, who later starred in George and Mildred. It was here he was approached by Ken Campbell to join his comedy roadshow, where he developed both his acting and a variety of sideshow skills. The Ken Campbell Roadshow, whose cast also included Bob Hoskins, was highly successful, featuring in the secret policeman's ball at the invitation of John Cleese. It also led to McCoy's stage name. He performed the title role in An Evening with Sylvester McCoy, performing what would become his signature stunts, hammering a nail into his nose, escapology and putting ferrets down his trousers. As a gag, the program credited the act as Sylvester McCoy, played by Sylvester McCoy. And when a critic assumed that that was the performer's real name, McCoy appreciated the irony and adopted it, later adding an R. 
In the late 70s, McCoy was spotted by director Joan Littlewood, the mother of modern theatre, and began to appear in more traditional acting roles. His career spanned pantomime, cabaret, Shakespeare and opera, and included work alongside everyone from Timothy Dalton to Bonnie Langford. He developed his love for combining pathos and comedy in one-man shows about Buster Keaton and Laurel Hardy. McCoy also appeared on various children's television programs, including Tiz Was, Jigsaw, Vision On and Eureka, and made his film debut with the small roles in 1979's Dracula, starring Frank Langella and Laurence Olivier. McCoy had been keen on the role of the Doctor for many years, having loved Patrick Troughton in the role in his 20s, and asked his agent to make inquiries when he heard Colin Baker was leaving. Producer John Nathan Turner interviewed him, then, to ease the reservations of BBC bosses, auditioned him opposite Tegan actress Janet Fielding. Once cast, he had much input into the character and costume of the Seventh Doctor, including the hat and famous question mark umbrella. After the series ended, he continued to work consistently in theatre, with his more notable roles including the Sheriff of Nottingham in a musical version of Robin Hood, and the fool to Ian McKellen's King Lear in an international tour with the Royal Shakespeare Company. On television, he has appeared in Jackanory, The History of Tom Jones, A Foundling, Hollyoaks, The Bill, Doctors and Casualty. Having missed out on roles in Pirates of the Caribbean and The Lord of the Rings, he has gone on to play the wizard Radagast opposite McKellen's Gandalf in the trilogy of films based on The Hobbit. He has returned to the role of the Seventh Doctor many times, including the anniversary special Dimensions in Time, the 96 telemovie and webcast Death Comes to Time, and since 1999, around 75 audio dramas with big Finnish productions. He continues to work in film, television and theatre, lives in London and has two sons, who as young boys played Hemovores in The Curse of Fenric. Am I right at thinking that at this, at this point, uh, over 25% of the doctors have trained to be monks? Um, yeah. yeah well, well, at least two of them, so yes. Yes. It is surprisingly popular. Yeah. Wow. As, as a, well, one of them actually was a monk for a while. Tom right. Beck actually was yeah. one. Whereas Sylv just, he trained to be one. Well, he wanted to be one, and they said, no, you're too young. Can I mention, we forgot to, to mention what Petra's wearing tonight. Oh, of course. When, we, when we were discussing costume before. What are you wearing, Petra? <laughs> Oh, well, I've decided to come as uh, one of the Kangs, the Red Kangs, because the Red Kangs are the best. Red Kangs are best. Yeah. But what's your Kang name, though? Oh, I haven't really decided. Look, if anyone wants to suggest a Kang name to me and pop it in the uh, the TARDIS during the interval. Yeah, happy to take suggestions. Yeah. Fire escapes taken, and so is Bin Liner. (laughs) I'm wearing a pub covered in wall scroll, so it works. Yes. Please don't visit the uh, urinal before you come up with the name. <laughs> or do. Well, let's kick off uh, some thoughts on Sylvester McCoy. I think he's really good. <laughs> Likewise. Yeah. Likewise. It's controversial, I know, but I just want yeah. to throw that out there. It was controversial at the time. He was not popular at the time. I, I went back and did, like I usually do, um, check out you know, the Tomorrow's Times uh, documentary, which goes back into the yeah, British Library archives of newspapers to tell us what the press was saying about things at the time. Um, and uh, supposedly this was like one of the most negative times 
of the press against the show. They keep saying that in the documentary, but then every second thing that they quote is actually quite positive. So I don't know, I don't know that they really understood what research means, but that's okay. <laughs> that's all right. Um, but there were, it was interesting that people were a bit, they were very thingy about him when he was cast. They're like, who is this guy? Like he, we... he was, to be fair, one of his most famous acts at that point was having a model train slam into his testicles. That's true, yeah. With <laughs> so a fork he... on the end, like yeah. it was for added danger. <laughs> You can watch that. It's in the it's in the secret policeman's ball um, uh, charity <laughs> event. And you can get a video of it. Not for much longer if he's got a fork on the end. <laughs> yeah, it was it was really it was really interesting the way the press reacted. Well, but but the point was more that they were just ignoring it, wasn't it? It, it was almost like the show just disappeared. Yeah, in this and, period. And also that first season that we was in was very much derided for being a bit too bright and colourful and cheery. Like there's um, this great quote from uh, the Daily Mail uh, around the time that Delta and the Bannerman was on. There are those, usually the under 20s, who enjoy the bright colours, the starry cast and the glitzy production values which the show now embraces. But others believe there is something radically wrong with a show which 24 years ago had something indefinite but sufficiently attractive to capture the hearts and imaginations of the British public. It's just like... To be fair... has a mean? To be fair, in Time in the Rani, he does arrive on a rainbow. Yeah. <laughs> that's, the TARDIS comes down to the rainbow. That's it's, true. It's one of the worst examples of like, uh, of like a fixed camera special effect. This is rainbow appears and then suddenly doink, like the camera like shakes a little bit the TARDIS appears but out of nowhere. It's worth pointing out though, that thing that I just wrote out was written by Andrew Beach, who was the coordinator of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society. <laughs> like... The official fan club at the time was basically like, you've ruined Doctor Who. We're like, guys, shut up. <laughs> They'll stop you know making you're... it, you idiots. <laughs> That's how you know you've achieved something, though, if the fans are upset. You know, you're, you're pushing the boundaries. Is that... Is that... I was going to say, like, is he honestly commenting on the high production values in that quote? <laughs> the the like, glitzy production like, values. They yeah. had, they, there was, well, there's this thing called the Quantel paint box that was the, it was the predecessor to Adobe Photoshop, basically. That they were using this this period that was huge at the time. It looks really hokey now, but like the the whole opening, the first thing you see in in the first episode of McCoy is a computer generated TARDIS, which was massive yeah. at the time. I actually do remember Time of the Rani, the uh, the. the Spheres, the, the kind of boing effect for yeah. fans of 2018. Uh, that, that, at the time, I actually remember being really impressive. That was genuinely, for Doctor Who, seemed quite glitzy. Um, it probably doesn't stand up so much now. But I also found the glitziness really sinister. And that's one of the things I love about this series. Like, I know it gets, people make fun of it a lot, but I, I loved the Happiness Patrol, right? And because this is at a time when, uh, as mentioned earlier, Margaret Thatcher is in power. Uh, you had, they recruited all these kind of angry young writers, like people like Ben Aronovich and, you know, to, and, and you have this kind of, this presentation of a kind of colourful world that is, it's almost like that kind of 1984 enforced colour and then underneath it there's a kind of uh, a grim sadness that isn't was almost not allowed to emerge, but it's almost there as a commentary. I actually, I love that story as well. And it's, it's fun. This whole period is interesting. The producer stays the same as it has been. It's John Nathan Turner has been for quite a while. But Andrew Cartmel comes in as a new script editor. And it's interesting to see how much power the script editor must have. And we were talking in the last show about how it had become clear that, that things had broken down with Eric Sayward, who was the script editor at the time, with, with the producer. And when Cartmel comes in, he wants to be inspired by comics, which are really happening in uh, this period in the 80s. Things like Watchmen and, you know, the Alan Moore uh, stuff. A whole lot of uh, British 
comic artists and writers are moving to America for Vertigo. So stuff like uh, Hellblazer, the um, John Constantine comic, which is very explicitly, like the, the opening stories are explicitly anti-Thatcher mm. stories. And 2000 AD uh, is, is really happening this time and they're doing a lot of it. So he's coming from that position going, I want to... Actually, he, there's a famous quote where he said he wanted to bring down the government, apparently. That was, yeah, yeah, he was being interviewed in by John Nathan interview. Turner. He said, well, what do you want to do with Doctor Who? And he said, I want to bring down the government. And he wasn't, he wasn't actually serious, but he was like, I'll give it a go. <laughs> And that's why the show was cancelled, right? Yeah. It was sort of like, this well, is weird. As, we don't know what to do with this. As someone who worked on The Glass House, sometimes when you take on the government, the government wins. Well, <laughs> I think we mentioned in one of the other shows that in this period, if anyone had been watching, they would have gotten into a lot of trouble. But it was just the fact that no one was watching. So a lot of the stuff <laughs> they were doing was... Because there is, like you were saying before, a lot of this is about Thatcher. It's about Thatcherism. It's about capitalism. It's... It's quite impressive stuff to be doing in what, in some ways, is more obviously a children's program too in this period. Although there's some stuff that that he didn't let through as well, which is quite nice. Like I was reading this thing about the, the first draft of Dragonfire, where before Ace and before um, some of the other characters, apparently it, it featured a 14-year-old financial genius and his sidekick, Mr. Spewey. <laughs> I really want to know. I really want to see the spin-off media now about Mr. Spewey. <laughs> what was Mr. Spewey? I don't know. Else? All I know is the name S P E W E Y. I so. want to see the sexy, sexy fan fiction. <laughs> no, John. No. <laughs> but Paul, you. I mean, we were talking before the show started. You said you had a really interesting response to when you came back and watched these episodes again. Um. Yeah, but I mean, because obviously I only saw them as. Um, these kind of fragmented avant-garde pieces of, of art. Um, like most of my responses to Doctor Who is actually from the, from the novelization. So I don't really have a really strong sense of, um, of what the, of my Doctor. But, um, but watching these episodes, it was clear that Sylvester McCoy is the one that I have seen the most of. Um, the Silver Nemesis, The End of Survival. Um, also, I've seen, I think, most of the regenerations, weirdly. Like, my parents seemed to go out whenever the Doctor was regenerating. It's like... Coincidence. It's just like, hmm. Did they know? They're, oh, we're off they secretly... The we're, off, we're off to kill the Doctor <laughs> and give it a shot. We're going to push um, him off an exercise bike. That'll finish <laughs> that'll him. That'll teach him. That'll teach him. Good. Um, and so, yeah, so it's, it's kind of all of the stories are kind of mashed together in my head in a way that, like, they kind of have certain, uh, you know, personality textures, but they're not necessarily like Sylvester McCoy or, you know, Patrick Troughton or whatever. It's all just the Doctor doing different Doctory things, I think, which is weird. But, it's, I mean, it's really interesting watching Sylvester McCoy and, and like, re- relating it to a kid's show and also, like, seeing the the evolution of it, like, becoming more complex and, and darker, like in coming out of... And obviously a show which is going, we don't quite know what we are or where we're going to be. Let's do a bunch of good experiments and then get cancelled. Like that seems to be... That seems to be like the, the stuff that they're doing towards the end is so interesting. And I think um, like Sylvester McCoy and Ace... Uh, sorry, Sophie Aldred reach a point where they know where they're going now. You watch them at the start and they're both like, oh, and their line readings are about, hmm... But by the time they get to the end, it's actually like, it's a really compelling relationship and a really, you can kind of see the trajectory that they're going to be go- going on. And it's kind of a shame that that didn't get to kind of play out like on TV. Mm. So, I have this theory. I don't know if this is, I can't back this up. But uh, <laughs> I've just been, no, I've been thinking about, because what you're saying about the evolution of the show. And um, if you, th- it's a kind of a retcon theory. But if you, if you think about the Doctor as a consistent character rather than someone who regenerates and comes back as a totally different personality, you almost get this kind of arc of somebody growing up. I mean, in a lot of ways, um, uh, you know, uh, 
William Hartnell. William Hartnell is is very infantile, you know, and he's always kind of clowning around and being silly. And then you get Patrick Troughton, who is uh, much more worried about danger and kind of cautious. And then you get uh, John Pertwee is almost like this kind of um, teenage kid who now thinks they're a grown up, and they kind of he acts very in control all the time. Whereas then you know, uh, and Tom Baker gets much more experimental and just kind of follows this arc. And with for me, Sylvester McCoy is the point where he really starts acting. Uh, like a, a grown-up in a lot of ways, with kind of middle-aged concerns and 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 secrets, not in a sense of a, not in terms of necessarily keeping secrets, but in terms of of keeping people safe from information or giving them information that he feels they can handle. It's a much more adult character than he's been so far in the series, for in a lot of ways. One of the things I think is interesting too about that, and mentions Ace in particular and the relationship between them, and Ace is, is probably one of the most developed characters in the history of the show, or at least gets more of a history than most characters do, is that when the show came back and everyone was doing the whole, oh, it's amazing, they're approaching Rose and they're going through the companion, there's this history and there's all this stuff and real world, and you're going, that's exactly what they were doing in the last couple of years of McCoy. And it's just funny that it's, it's the exact template for the show when it came back in 2005, and I don't think it really got the the sort of kudos, or at least the, you know, people were still sort of dismissing the McCoy era when you were going, but that's what it is now. I think that it's because, it's it's that whole fan thing, like the, the people who were fans through, you know, late Tom Baker era, through Peter Davison, through Colin Baker, and then the Sylvester McCoy, they're the people who ended up making it later, and so their templates are kind of formed around those ideas because like other ideas like oh you know it's, it's actually a show about earth and humans and you watch McCoy and McCoy frequently goes humans you suck yeah. you are you are gross and you start wars and I'm going to fix you all it's like he actually really hates them you know and like so people have these conceptions that are basically just about when they grew up and McCoy, like McCoy and the, the resurgence of the show that's when those templates were like established although the guy who wrote I think it's Silver Nemesis uh, he apparently didn't watch any Doctor Who beforehand yeah yeah and he came in saying uh, I, you know, he basically was, was kind of riffing is my understanding you know, in a pitch meeting goes what if what if Doctor Who is, is literally God and that was kind of what kicked off the Cartmel master plan in a lot of ways wasn't it the, the, this idea that he has this kind of larger almost divine backstory. Was, well, that was kind of the idea that Cutman wanted was to bring mystery back to the character and to do that because we'd found out so much. Like, if you go back and watch... I mean, I think that's why I really liked when we went back and watched the first couple of Doctors uh, for the show, really revisiting that time when you just didn't know who he was or where he was from. And it wasn't... And that mystery was interesting, not because they talked about it a lot, but just because it meant you didn't know what he was going to do or react. You didn't know what he knew. You didn't know what his background was. And they wanted to re-establish that idea that the Doctor was a mysterious figure, not that we know how many regenerations he's got left. We know where his people are from. We know what his people's society is like. And we know that he rejects that society. All that stuff became all filled in rather than a sketch where you could imagine it. And they're like, we want to broaden that. We want to make him a bigger figure again so that there's all this empty space that you don't know what the truth is. What's interesting about that, though, is is the question... I, I kind of only realised this watching the McCoy episodes and thinking about how television changed between that and the new series. And, like, I actually don't know that the format of the show in McCoy's time could have supported that type of storytelling. You know, and that you can see bits and pieces of it starting to come out in the last few McCoy episodes, and you can see... Uh, McCoy and, and, and Sophie Aldred like layer the performance a little bit for some of that depth but I really wonder how much 
plot and exposition they can do. Because you can see the news show, it really struggles with that, but they at least have templates. You can at least go back and you can go, okay, Buffy did that and Angel did that and all of these kind of other kind of supernatural shows that came out through the 90s solved a lot of those problems. But I think that probably fed into the cancellation as well. It's like the show you want to do, we don't know how to make. Except in the 80s, you got a lot of... um for the first time, you know, that I remember, a lot of big shows that lasted whole seasons, that story that lasted a whole season, like, um, was it Murder One and uh, uh, Twin Peaks came out around this time, didn't it? So it's kind of like in America it was starting to happen. Well, it is a too. I think that if the show had continued, it was also a period in which the, the look of television was moving from that, um, what we now consider soap opera or multicam sitcom, which at this time I think it was one of the only dramas still being filmed in that style. Uh, and they were starting to do things like frame-removed video, which is sort of what they do now. You know, it's, an, it's a version of... Um, they were talking for the next series, they were going to have pre-credit sequences. Um, they had a whole arc involving the new companion. You'd see her as a child, you'd see her as an adult. Like, it's, the funny thing is, I think if the show had continued, it, it pretty much would have been the show we have now anyway. It felt like that is where it was going. And it's odd in some ways that it, it was already there, you know, 15 years mm. earlier. The other thing I really like this period I want to mention is that I really like it when these things tell us something about the time. Yeah. And, for example, the John Pertwee era is so of the early 70s and tells us so much about the anxieties and the ideas. And, and this period is quite astonishing, even down to it turns out that the character of Ace, her costume is the cover of the Face magazine. They actually took an image that was on the cover of the Face and it's the, um, the sort of salt and pepper, the... Um, I forgot what they were called, but a certain type of rapper at the time. And, and it was a look that was popular in America. She's basically, they just copied it. They went, yep, bomber jacket, the tights, the... Like, it's, it's it never occurred to me. That's awesome. Yeah, but it's actually, <laughs> like, it, it is so of the moment she is in that I think yeah, that is yeah. great. And I love Survival, I think, is one of, one of the, the best scripts the show's ever had. Mm-hmm. The execution's maybe a little bit dodgy here and there. But it's, it's an amazing script, and that, to me, is, is some of the, the most perfect you know, post-2005 Doctor Who is in survival. And it's certainly a show that, like, all of the themes about it are responding to what the show needs to be. Like, it's about, you know, the the kind of the ideas of the individual's place within its larger personal narrative. You know, those are the things that play out in that final season. Those are the themes that are there and about the struggle to to adapt and change. Like, I don't know how conscious that was in the writers, but it is super interesting to see a show which almost knows that it has to change, but isn't quite sure how it's got to change. Well, Carmel said he deliberately got writers in who uh, he thought were young and exciting and new and had new ideas, but also hadn't seen the show. And they were working from this kind of almost folklore idea of... It's like you were saying, I think Doctor Who, for everyone, is an amalgam of moments and events and a kind of vibe, you know, rather than people specifically knowing exactly which bits from where. It's funny, though. I, I, like, I, I, was, I remember being pretty devastated when I found out it was going to get cancelled. But at the same time, part of me now is a little bit glad that the Carmel Must plan didn't get to continue. Because just I, I haven't read the, the New Adventures, I haven't read Long Barrow, but talking about that thing about creating mystery, he seemed to have so much of it filled in. It was just a different kind of retconned backstory. And one of the things I loved about this era uh, wasn't just the characters, but this uh, it was about Cartmel's mythology that he was kind of adding was that there was a difference between Gallifreyans and Time Lords and that he was kind of training Ace to be a Time Lord, although she'd never be a Gallifreyan. And so that, that element, uh, that kind of mentor-student thing that comes into it really appealed to me. And that did bring a lot of that mystery and a lot of that kind of... Yeah, and it's kind of nice the way that it ends where 
he is training her to be better. Like she's, ba- he's basically helping her become a, a better, you know, a more adult, a more integrated personality, more, you know, to deal with her own issues. Um, and sometimes he does that in a, you know, a slightly confrontational way. <laughs> it's like, here, come to this house that really freaked you out once. <laughs> That's right. Um, I love that story, though. Wow, um, amazing. But but you know, he clearly does care for her. Um, and I think it's interesting. I just listened to just recently they did an audio adaptation of Love and War, which was uh, the Paul Cornell novel where Ace leaves and he introduces a new companion, Benny Summerfield. And they really, in the new adventures, took this idea of the Doctor as this chess-playing, scheming manipulator to the nth degree. And when we watch the TV series, it's, it's there, but to a much lesser extent. And the thing I like about the way they do it in the TV show is that, yes, he's made plans to thwart universe-shattering evil, but he's not entirely sure they're going to work and he doesn't necessarily know all the bits of the plan. Like when he shows up in Remembrance of the Daleks, he knows what he wants to happen. He wants the Daleks to take the hand of Omega so that, you know, they can't get mastery over time because they think that's what's going to happen. He's sorted it out so that's not what's going to happen to them. But he turns up and he's like, oh, there's all these humans in the way. I guess I'm going to have to get them out of the way. And oh, wait a minute, there's two lots of Daleks. Oh no, it's all complicated. What's going on? Uh, and he doesn't know like how it's going to end up. And he's just sort of, he's, it's not, he's not so much playing chess as he's juggling. He's, it's like, it's, mu- it's a much more appropriate metaphor for Sylvester McCoy. He's spinning plates in the air and he's like, oh, no, that one's, oh, yeah, run over there. And he's hoping, you know, the ace and the other human characters are kind of like the audience in one of those shows who point out the plates that are about to point, fall off. They're like, but Professor, what about that? And he's like, oh, no, we've got to do that. And um, Curse of Fenric's the same. Like, he shows up and he's like, I think I know what's going on here. I'm not quite sure what all the players are and what's exactly going on and he's going to try and figure it out as he goes along. And again, in Ghostlight, he doesn't know what's happening in the house. He just knows it's important to Ace and he has to bring her back here to sort it out. And I think that that midpoint where he's got a plan but it's not all worked out in advance is really great. Which is, really well. which is for me, the going back and rewatching those episodes is the most interesting thing about McCoy's era from a storytelling perspective is it's not really... It's not really arc driven. It's just like here's a situation, and a whole bunch of like shit happens to like mess up that situation. Um, whereas I think like with the again coming back to that idea about how television was changing, it, it almost is starting to push into more of an arc driven format again. It's starting to push into character driven stuff. It's starting to push into you know taking all of the the hero's journey cues you know from that. And it's almost as though you kind of look at the McCoy stuff and you think this is incredible, but like, can it survive? Like, can these characters survive? And, like, what you're talking about with the Cardinal Plan is actually, it's becoming a hero's journey where the Doctor is a mentor and Ace becomes a hero. It's actually moving in that direction. I think, like, it's almost nice that it sort of ended without that, mm-hmm. without us seeing that transition yeah. for, like, a while. And also for that story to move into the books, to kind of go into a different space to so that the edges of that can be explored in a different medium that doesn't have the same kind of restrictions as the, the TV show. Now, I've got to say, this has been a much more, uh, much more positive show than our Colin Baker one was <laughs> already. Uh, and yet there is still a lot of people... There was for a long time a belief that, that McCoy was the worst Doctor and he'd... Uh, he why, went up and down in the lists. But, but and, why, why do you think that still even persists now? Because I, mean, I watch these and go, well, these are clearly better. The show's clearly ascending again. It's on its way back. Yeah. Why I, do people feel that negativity towards him? I, I don't know. I don't know if this answers your question. But I think one of the... One of the <laughs> no, I'm just glad you're here, Dave. It's just nice to see you. 
it's good to hang out. And, you know. yeah, it's all, yeah. No, but one of the things that the, the overriding, like defining character qualities, I think, thinking about this the hero's journey idea, uh, throughout all the regenerations uh, has been this idea of the Doctor as a kind of trickster. And, uh, and he really does, McCoy really does amp this up, particularly at the beginning, partly because of his carny background. Uh, and I wonder whether people had like a negative response to that because he if you don't actually if you don't buy into the idea that a, a trickster might have something going under the surface or might be a you know a distraction to a um a greater intelligence or might, which has a very strong role you know in, in religion and mythology this a nancy the spider man and all those kinds of stories um then you might see it as as just a bit of buffoonery, which I think my memory is this, that was the response a bit when he first appeared was that this they've turned the Doctor into a clown rather than they've turned the Doctor into a a character who uses or you know into a kind of classical fool and not a friendly clown. He's kind of a mean clown, yeah. As well, like my my feeling again rewatching it is just like this is a super hard performance to like find something positive and like I think it's actually quite a layered performance, but. It's it's quite an aggressive performance all the way through. You know, he he kind of really harshly rolls R's and uses his accent as a weapon, and he's always like moving in an opening and kind of slamming stuff. But he's and just, not like, as harsh as Colin Baker. No, no, no. But I think that I think that like people were looking for something that was, you know, a return to, or almost a return to sympathy. You know, for it, like moving back to Peter Davison or Tom Baker, and the fact that he didn't. There's I definitely think a like, dissatisfaction with Empire as well, I think, now. Like, talking about, uh, the, going back to those earlier Doctors, you know, particularly John Pertwee and, and Peter Davidson, there's a real kind of like, yes, we're so incredibly British. And, uh, I mean, apart from the accent, uh, there's also this, this sense where, uh, I mean, all the McCoy stories are about Nazis, pretty much, which are thinly veiled analogies to the British government. Like, there's... There's a lot of that going on, like a lot of kind of. It's a very, it's a much more cynical show, and and maybe that's you know they're not fulfilling that kind of more romantic ideal of Britain. Yeah, it's certainly not a show that is. Uh, I mean, it's still an idealistic and it's still a moral and optimistic show, but I don't think it's a show that says we this this is the best that we are. It's actually a show that says humans. You can be a bit crap sometimes, yeah. You know, and not even like in the subtext. You'll just be like, "Oh my god, stop, stop having wars, yeah, just stop I, it." I actually They're think bad. you could say that the Colin Baker era became a cynical show, and that there was a sense of almost a rigidity sets into the types of stories they're telling and what they think is going to happen. I think the McCoy era becomes a show set in a cynical world, and I think the character himself is still represents optimism and change, but the world he is in. And that world of late eighties England yeah, yeah. is quite a dark one. And also, like, has the Doctor's understanding that it is okay to kind of fight? Basically, kind of starts to come out. Like McCoy feels like a character who is always just there, and he's just like, "Yep, I'm up for it. I'm going to get my spoons and my ferret and my yeah. umbrella and my umbrella, <laughs> and we are going to war." Yeah, and by the way, Ace, that, that Nitro 9 that you yeah. don't have in your backpack. <laughs> Consistently, don't bring it, don't bring it. Oh, have you got some? Oh, good, yeah. Give it Constantly. to me, I'm going to blow up this building site. By the way, it wasn't until I went back and rewatched Dragonfire that I realised that she, she makes it out of deodorant cans. And she must go yeah. through a lot of deodorant. I think, I think she collects them. There's, there's all those episodes you don't are... see, like between this, the TV It's runs. such a cold place. Why is anyone sweaty in the first place? 
I don't know. It's but a it's, big jacket. It's a big jacket. <laughs> it is warm. I, I do want to say that the other thing for me about the McCoy era is it's so full of such great ideas and moments and, and also it's it's a great place. I think it's a really interesting place to bring people on. I, I still to this day think Remembrance of the Daleks is one of the best shows to show someone who's new to Doctor Who. I've been showing my girlfriend some episodes. She's not really into Doctor Who that much and she so I haven't shown her too many. I'm not a cruel man. But, <laughs> but we watched Remembrance of the Daleks and it was the first one she really went, this is great. Like, she really loved yeah. Sylvester McCoy's Doctor. She thought Ace was amazing. Um, it's a time when the show becomes more diverse in its casting. Like, they're casting a lot more non-white actors, a lot more women uh, in interesting roles with stuff to do. And so they're changing the face of who is in the program as much and, you know, hopefully trying to appeal to a different audience perhaps, but also just to make it more, you know, multicultural, more inclusive as a show. So you're basically being the seventh Doctor by making her realise that Doctor Who was a show that she wanted to watch all along. Just no. <laughs> no, I'm not doing and Look that. at this scary house. Um, but yeah, but there's so many great ideas. Like Ghosts Like the Scary House, the, the Scary Clowns in Greatest Show in the Galaxy. And again, it's one of those years where you read about some of the stuff that happened behind the scenes and you just wonder, how did they even continue to get the show made? And by the end, you know, when they got cancelled, when it, when it ended, uh, The Sun, which normally would go nuts over any Doctor Who news reported that it would not be coming back on page 25 in a tiny little article that nobody read, uh, which said Doctor Who finally has been exterminated by Coronation Street in the Wednesday night ratings. I choose to think that that's because they were so heartbroken. <laughs> they didn't want to But say then it. in 1990, there was nothing. There were no major news articles about Doctor Who for an entire year after the show finished. And then the year after that, people started going, are you going to bring it back? Like... We weren't serious when we said you should stop making it. <laughs> it's actually kind of good. We'd realise how ha- good we had it. I remember, I remember that sense of just the kind of the slow dribbling out of the show. It just kind of everyone everyone was aware of it. Like everyone knew Doctor Who and everyone knew that it was still on TV opposite Coronation Street. But it just kind of felt as though it was just slowly. Stopping and then it it did stop, and like people were just like, Oh, it stopped. And like, no one really kind of there wasn't a big deal, as you know, as evidenced by being on page 25 of the sun. But yeah, it was in the country, there wasn't any sort of collective awareness that had gone away. It just kind of went. And that last monologue that McCoy gives about going off to fight. You know injustices and evils and things. That was that was done in post, wasn't it? That wasn't even scripted. In it the was original. written by Andrew yeah. Cartmel when he found out that would be the last episode, or thought that it would be. Yeah. We also had so many questions, so many more than usual, which we don't have time for. So we're just going to actually choose two door prizes instead. Yeah, because there were so all the questions are really good. We couldn't pick a favourite, which is what we normally do. So we're going to draw two people out of the TARDIS. Uh, there will be two random prizes today, but we are going to try and uh, address some of the questions. Yes. So look very quickly. I've just got uh, these are three we can go through. Uh, the first one just says Blue Kangs, Blue Kangs, Blue Kangs are best. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Not technically a you question. You just leave by that carry door right now. <laughs> we have uh, some suggestions for Kang names for uh, Petra. Someone suggested that uh, Petra's Kang name should be Line Fluff, which I think is very mean. Oh. <laughs> what do you think she is, Billy hey, Hartnell? Hey, I resemble that remark. <laughs> uh, and other suggestions for Kang names for your Petra are Staircase, Mic Stand, Footstool, Light Bulb, Hat Stand, Shoe Rack, Dishcloth, and my personal favourite, Ceiling Cat. <laughs> oh, wow. Someone on Twitter also suggested urinal cake, oh. which I think is all... I'm glad that you said that, because that's mean. But they're yummy. 
here's one actually that's good for everybody on the panel. Uh, at what point after survival did we each realise that the show wasn't coming back? How did we find that out and realise it and how do we feel? Well, I had that weird thing where, and people have mentioned this before, I did drift away at the end of the Colin Baker period and I remember seeing the McCoys on videotapes that were, were just given to us within a share house, oddly enough, with David, our sound guy, uh, in Perth and we were given these VHSs of them because I'm 160 years old and... They were given to us by a fan club. I don't know if they'd even been on air at that point here or if they'd been sent over by English fans. And I remember watching them and liking it a lot and thinking, oh, the show's got better again. Oh, I quite like this. But it was one of those things where I knew so rarely what was going on with Doctor Who at that time that I don't think I even knew for a while it had been cancelled. I think it was only... Oh, I think it was only when the show came back for that one-off in 96 that I kind of went, oh... That's a shame. It's dead now, isn't it? Oh. <laughs> I don't remember a definitive time, but I remember being... Uh, it, it was like watching a Dying Relative for years. And I was a massive fan, but I just knew that it was going to get cancelled any minute. So I don't remember the point where it happened, but I remember this kind of slow dawning realisation the next year that it, it wasn't back and therefore probably wasn't going to be. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I didn't really have a kind of a point where I realised that because, again, like just reading the books kind of was always just there. You just go to the library and get a new one and take it home and read it. So for me, it was kind of like I never really had a relationship to the TV show. So it was more just I just drifted onto other things rather than having a point where I was like, all right, that, that's gone. Now I have to go and be nerdy somewhere else. Actually, I reckon when the New Adventures books came because I, 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 I read the Target once, but I remember seeing these New Adventures in a bookshop and thinking... If there's new adventures, there are no more old ones. <laughs> like, yeah. Was it? yeah, yeah, That came as a bit of a relief to me. See, the thing is, around the Sylvester McCoy era was when I discovered that there was such a thing as a fandom and that people would write about Doctor Who because that's when I found my first issue of Doctor Who magazine in my local news agency. And at that point, I didn't even know who Sylvester McCoy was. He hadn't been on Australian TV yet and there was a picture of him on the cover from Delta and the Bannerman. So I, I read that and I got into it. So by the time the show was cancelled... I was buying every issue of Doctor Who magazine about two months after it had come out because that's how long it took to get into the local newsagent in northern New South Wales. Um, and so I, I knew. I knew before they screened the last episodes here. And, uh, and I was like, oh. And then on the other hand, I was like, that means I can get all of the Target novelizations because <laughs> they will stop having to make new ones. Um, and then the new adventures came out and I was reading those um, religiously if I could say that today <laughs> uh, but I, I really did yeah I, I tried to read them all and and so and I think that's why McCoy became so much my doctor because I knew the tv show was over but here he was still in my you know my favorite medium. Petra I think you've got a question. Oh, well I've got more uh, a comment really. Ace brought me back to Doctor Who. There's always a view in the media that Doctor Who had screaming bimbo assistants but most were brilliant role models for women. Barbara, Zoe, Liz, Sarah Jane, uh, Ace, Romana, etc. Also, 70s Doctor Who had brilliant female roles that disappeared in the 80s. Ace, like Leela, is the brawn to the Doctor's brain. It's a good comment. Well, um, she has good brains too. Well, she has, and I, was, I didn't say this before when we talked about the things that we loved about the era, but the language, like the insults she comes out with are amazing. I've, yeah. I made a list of some of my favourites. Uh, face ache? <laughs> Uh, she calls someone a grey day 100% div. <laughs> I would still call someone that. I would totally use that one. I think now it's a, now it's a programming term. Uh, uh, HTML5. Uh, male chauvinist bilge bag. And, and my personal favourite, she calls someone a birdbath. 
Yeah. Yeah. That also sounds like a Kang name, though, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. <laughs> yeah, Birdbath. Um, and also she always says, Gordon Bennett, which uh, my favourite... My favourite Gordon Bennett's though are actually in the Paradise. Uh, sorry, in um, uh, the Happiness Patrol because the pipe people hear her say it, and later on they're like, "Who have you met?" And they're like, "Gordon." It's like what? <laughs> Gordon Bennett. It's like, oh right, Ace. You met Ace. Um, and it's an interesting side note. Gordon Bennett. Uh, the reason it's an exclamation is in the late uh, ni- late nineteenth century, there was an American who came over to England in London with lots of money. He was like a nouveau riche gentleman um, who disgraced himself by urinating in someone's fireplace when he was drunk. <laughs> And that was so scandalous that his name became famous and it became a byword for someone who does something unacceptable and then it just became a general insult. So there you go. And yet not urinal cake. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking I kind of like urination fireplace. (laughs) That's my Kang name. Thanks, guys. Oh, that's a Kang name. Okay, good. I'm glad we cleared that up. Urination fireplace. I was just thinking later on Gordon Bennett cured cancer, but no, all they remember. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I've got this one. This one is um, just a couple of good comments I like. Um, somebody pointed out they like the fact that Ace only ever calls the doctor doctor in moments of great danger or stress. <laughs> Every other time it's professor. Um, and uh, they wondered if the reason that people maybe disliked the era was because a lot of the stories were very left of field or weird in a mainstream sense. I think that's an interesting point, but I think, um, I think that had already happened in the Colin Baker era. Like something like Vengeance on Varos... Was, which itself was basically a critique of the passivity of a television audience. That was a pretty weird kind of story to tell. Um, although I suppose you could say, like we talked about this last episode, that something like Terror of the Vervoids was actually a pretty straightforward murder mystery. Like I still argue it's a cool murder mystery in space, but it is a murder mystery. Whereas then something like Ghostlight, people supposedly have a lot of trouble understanding. I think there was a sense, though, that the show, it was deliberately put on at a time where it would, it would not rate. It was up against Coronation Street, which was like the, the ratings juggernaut in the UK. And, and there's a way that, you know, success attracts success and failure attracts failure. I, I think there's a, we blame that era more than it deserves for the fact that it was the last one. There is definitely more opaque, though. There's a lot more stories that kind of that that you are left to find your own conclusions, which I really like. Or at least, okay, growing up, uh, they're they're a little less and checking Google, Wikipedia, they're a little less opaque than I thought at the time. But <laughs> but they are still, you know, there's some pretty uh, some pretty vague. I mean, Ghostlight is a great example. It has a it has a narrative, but it's not really resolved in the way that some of those earlier stories are. I, you know what? I was watching it again because I. It's one of those stories where I watch it and I go, I, I can see what's going on here, and and maybe that's you know part of the fanish obsession with it. It's like yeah, I'm cleverer than normal people because I'm a Doctor Who fan and I understand how Ghostlight works. <laughs> also, I only had to watch Total Recall once, um, something like that. But but actually, I think it does it does resolve itself, and there is a story there. It's just they choose to tell it in this very piecemeal way, and it's a very complex yeah. story in many ways. So it's got a lot of parts and. Not everybody in the story understands the story, so yeah, I think it's uh, it's a really interesting piece of storytelling. You have to you have to work harder though to to read the story. It also does like a massive tonal eight whatever it is like one eighty seven twenty, um, <laughs> you know, towards the end. And I think that, that that's actually probably what when people talk about the stories being left to field, that might be what where they're getting at. It's like it starts off as one thing and then in the last episode, the last two episodes, it just goes, actually, you've been watching this and that thing is nuts. Um, And I think Ghostlight does it really well. It's kind of this murder mystery kind of hammer horror house thing and suddenly there's a giant glowing angel who somehow resolves everything. Um, 
you know, and I think like tonally it's inconsistent, but it's really, it's actually that tonal inconsistency that makes that story interesting. I think when you watch a lot of the McCoy stuff, it's the, the, the kind of the, the, the different personalities of the different stories and the way that they rub against each other. Like Remembrance of the Daleks, the idea of having two Dalek factions fighting on Earth is kind of abrasive and having the Doctor in the middle trying to figure it out and actually the Doctor constantly going, I want this to happen, this is the thing that needs to happen. It's really interesting but not necessarily conventional. You have been listening to Splendid Chaps. This episode of Splendid Chaps, Seven Religion, is presented in two parts. Join us for part two, where we talk with the Reverend Dr. Avril Hannah-Jones and have a special musical performance by Lee Zachariah and Adam Rudiger. We'd like to thank this episode's Splendid Chaps, Paul Callahan, Dave Bluestein, the Reverend Dr. Avril Hannah-Jones, Lee Zachariah and Adam Rudiger. Your hosts were Ben McKenzie and John Richards. The audio engineering and theme tune were created by the technical wizardry of David Ashton from Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us at SplendidChaps.com and at Splendid Chaps on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Petra Elliott, and until next time, thank you. It's good. Keep warm. <laughs>